Welcome to the Not Work Podcast. This is the show where we untangle our myths and reweave our stories, one ancient tale at a time. I'm your host, Marisa Gowdy. I'm a word witch, a writing coach, a story healer, and the author of The Sovereignty Knot, A Woman's Way to Freedom, Power, Love, and Magic. Myth is medicine for the modern soul. Let's hear today's story and explore why it still matters. Episode 2, Ireland's Forgotten Goddess Queen Witch. My guest for this episode is Meg Sweeten. She's a certified meditation and mindfulness teacher. She's also the founder of The Soul Cabin, a practical online resource for inner wellness. This virtual space supports modern women looking to rekindle and maintain a connection to themselves through all the seasons of life. She offers meditation, resilience techniques, nature-based practices, and soulful community. Meg is a soul sister. Meg is a Celtic sister. She and I both are rooted into our Irish Americanness in our own unique ways, and yet there are so many commonalities between us. It's really a pleasure to share this particular story with Meg because she actually reached out to me because she was a reader of The Sovereignty Knot. So she has read this story of Mungin because it does appear in the book. But here it is in a much more expanded form that um, hopefully lets us pull back many of the layers and find some real nuance in this. So you will get to meet Meg at length at the second part of this episode. But as we do on the Not Work podcast, we begin with a story. And so I invite you to get cozy and settle in. This is a bit of a long one. This is a story that I have recreated inspired by what we have of the ancient sources of the Mungan story. Fado, Fado, and Aaron. There was a queen. There was a king. She was not just any queen, and he was not just any king. The king, Yogi Mugmadan, was the rightful chosen king of all Ireland. The queen, Mungan, was the fair-haired one. She was the sacred queen. She was the land made flesh, the sovereignty goddess come to walk amongst her people to ensure the health of the earth and all who walked, swam, and flew over it. He was a man of his land and of his people. She was a woman of the she, those otherworldly folk who ruled Ireland in their way from the far side of the vale, from beneath the great hills. Now, we don't have a story of how they met or what she thought of him after their first date, but we do know this. A sovereignty goddess appeared in human form when it was time to choose the next worthy ruler. She would have chosen Yoki above all the other petty, warring kings of Ireland and set him upon the high king's throne at Tara because he was worthy of the land and its people. She chose him because she found him pleasing, and because, with him, she could be satisfied. So yes, we can assume they wasted no time and made no pretense about waiting till their wedding night. This royal pair, who were blessed by the great mother upon whose back the kingdom was rooted, had four fine sons, Brian, Fiacha, Alil, and Fergus. Now, more than just a mother, more than just an envoy of the divine, Mungin was a seer. 
The stories have it that she had a dream of her sons becoming a pack of dogs, each different in his own way. Brian was such a great hound, he was confused with a lion. Fiechra appeared as a fleet-footed greyhound. Alil became a beagle. And finally, Fergus transformed into a black-mouthed cur. These dream sons turned dogs fought viciously with one another. Until, eventually, Brian's lion dog became the clear master. All three brothers bowed before him and offered their forever fealty. Dreams and visions were currency back then, and they were respected in a way that would seem foreign to most of us nowadays. Mungin's dreams came directly from nature, from the mother of all nature, from Mungfian's own divine nature. And so one might assume that was that. Royal family life would unfold according to the patterns as old as the earth itself, as old as the seasons. This story would follow the pattern of the goddess and her chosen king. This story would develop as naturally as boys and dogs and other growing things. It's true, Yoki and Mungin lived as the rightful king and queen of Tara for some time, ensuring the harvest from the fields and the peace between the people, or as much peace as there was in a land so accustomed to men making war upon her from shore to shore. There was always a limit as to what the goddess could do when her people took up sword and spear and found they could rule by strength rather than a commitment to balance. In her own divine human way, Mungin did what all goddesses do, tilting the world through the seasons, holding the harvest and making space for the frosts, and drying the tears of every woman, child, and elder who lost more than they had to give in the endless battles and strife. Well, sort of, but we'll get to that. Goddess blessed as he may have been, King Yoki was no more than a mortal man. One day he set his eyes upon the king of the Saxon's daughter. Some say that he fell for her because he knew their union would secure a peace with a powerful king from across the sea. Others would say that it was an early sign of the colonizer making its way into the heart of Ireland. Still others say it was merely lust, because even a king chosen by the goddess of sovereignty herself can be a man corrupted by his own power who will claim a woman with a pretty face and a head of jet black curls. Yoki took Karen Kashtov to become his wife, because in those days a man, particularly a royal one, was allowed to take up with another woman, even when he was already wed. Queen Mungin was a divine being born of the other world, but she had possession of a human heart and mind herself. She made this new young thing with her English rose good looks work like any kitchen girl. Karen spent much of her time carrying water from the well up the slopes of the royal Tara fortress. When she wasn't lugging a pail, she was lying in the king's bed. We know little of what Karen thought of her time in Tara whether she felt like a willing lover or an unwilling captive. We do know two things. Slavery and hostage-taking were a part of Irish culture at this time. And the stories say that Karen was terrified of Mungin. In time, there was a son born to Karen. We cannot know how she felt, whether she loved the king, whether she always felt homesick, whether King Yoki Mugmadon lived up to his name. Because that last bit, Mugmadon, 
It means slaveholder. The old stories do say that Karen was never given time to rest, even as her belly grew heavy. She gave birth upon the slope of the great hill of Tara in the midst of her rounds. A baby, who would be named Nile, was born right in the grass, and she left him there in the fields and went on with her work. The scribes tell us that it was her fear of Queen Mungin's wrath. Perhaps Karen had no interest in raising up a son of Ireland, Saxon, that she was. Maybe she was an unnatural woman who didn't know how to love, or it could be that her heart was too broken by her own painful circumstances to offer care to another. Maybe she couldn't bear the thought of raising a child to be a slave. A poet, who would eventually be known as a prophet, came by. His name was Torna, and he took the baby in his arms, wrapped him in his cloak, and instantly decided that this was a very good, very important deed. He took the child home to raise, but only after declaring that someday this infant would grow to be king of all Ireland and his descendants would rule Ireland forever. The sweetness was stolen from the marriage of Mungan and Yoki, and poor Karen still toiled with her endless buckets of water. A decade and more passed. Those baby boys grew to be men. When Niall learned of his esteemed parentage, he came back to the castle to claim his royal rights and to elevate his mother to her noble place as a consort to the king. They must have made an awkward trinity, Yoki and Mungan, standing beside Karen, now dressed in a new royal purple mantle upon her son's command. Now, though you may have grown up on tales of firstborn sons inheriting the throne, it was not so in ancient Ireland. The king chose his successor, and everyone had something to say about who would wear the crown. Dear listeners, I do invite you to keep that in mind as our story unfolds. Mungan had always favored Brian, and it was no secret that she assumed he would take the kingship of Tara and all of Ireland when her husband took his last one-way journey to Tirnanog in the Western Isles. Imagine how his her entire vision of the world would have been upended when this new young man appears and claims his right to a royal father, sets his own mother beside the queen, and asserts his right to inheritance. The men who wrote down this tale in their yellow book in Lecan way over in County Sligo say that Mungan was incensed. But they're the same ones who say that it was her insecure, queenly jealousy that had a noble princess like Karen toiling like a lowly slave. <laughs> they seem to have forgotten the meaning of the king's second name. The monks who put the story on paper would have it that the events in this story were set in motion by Mungin's petty cruelties and mad bids for control. Who's to know? Let's see what the next scenes might reveal. Now, Niall's star was on the rise. He proved himself to be an equal to those brothers who had been raised in the luxuries of the royal household. The crowd seemed to like him best. When the Druids set up challenges to determine the kingly potential of Yoki's sons, Niall always seemed to come out on top. No one was particularly happy about the state of royal affairs when the Druids sent the five young men out on a hunt. They were directed to carry only their weapons and leave all other supplies at home. They wandered deep into the woods beyond the territory they knew so well. It was growing dark, and all five young men were tired 
hungry, and thirsty. It was the thirst that drove them close to madness. At last, they reached a clearing, and there was a stout old well at its center. They rushed forth to satisfy their thirst, but a low, gravelly voice stopped them before they could cup their hands to drink. I am the guardian of this sacred well. You may drink your fill and more, the voice croaked, but you must kiss me first. Stepping from the gloom was the most loathsome of loathsome hags, nosed hooked to hairy chin, milky eyes, mossy teeth. She was the stuff of young men and young women's nightmares. Brian stood nearest to the old woman. He was accustomed to the pretty young things who hung about Tara. He'd rather die of thirst than give himself to such a wizened crone. He told her so and went off to sulk and lick his own dry lips. Picture a similar scene with the next three brothers, thirsty, arrogant lads, and an old woman who stands her ground, wrapped not in an embrace, but in a lonely passion for her work as protector of the sacred well. Youthful stubbornness and ancient dedication, side by side. But then the youngest brother, Nile, came forward. For the fifth time, the guardian makes her offer. You can drink all that you like, but you must kiss me first. Oh, he kissed her. That old woman was transformed into a siren who would give any modern fantasy heroine a run for her money. And the two didn't stop when they hit first base. He had met the sovereignty goddess, and she found him more than worthy. In honeyed tones from her honey mouth, this exquisite creature whispered that Nile would soon be king, and she would soon come to Tara to rule beside him. But now, he and his brothers, his less worthy, certainly not king material brothers, would return to Tara and assure everyone that the question of secession was assured. Brian and his brothers must have hung their heads as they walked behind the newly triumphant Nile. Mungin's screams must have been heard all the way in Scotland when she learned the news. King Yoki was still healthy enough, so nothing would change immediately, except that the entire future of Ireland had just been rewritten in a way that did not suit the current queen. Again, there's a lull in this story, but surely it was even less harmonious than during the young prince's childhood. Mungin, a goddess-turned-queen, could presumably only be left to her anger and powerlessness, and so she turned to the last identity left to her, a witch. In time, Yoki did die. As testament to her power, Mungin was able to install her brother, Crichen, on the throne, rather than see Nile assume it immediately. Now, how a sovereignty goddess has a mortal brother is a bit of a puzzle, but if the ancient scribes were not troubled by this, let's agree not to worry about it either at this point. So while her brother held the throne, Mungin sent Brian, who she still believed was most worthy to take up the divine sovereign legacy. She sent him to Scotland to study and build his skills as a warrior and leader. He was gone for seven long years, and when Brian did return, his uncle Crichton refused to pass the kingship on to him. Now, this would not do. Nile had disappeared from the scene, at least for the time being, and the queen could not stand fighting amidst her own house, amidst her own blood kin. Mungin arranged a great feast of reconciliation. She invited her sons, her brother, and all the rest of the hangers-on. Somehow, 
Niall and Karen's invitation was lost in the post. Sad, but c'est la vie. At the feast, she offered her brother her royal cup. Wise to her ways, perhaps he was of the she as well, he said, of course, but you must drink first, dear sister. And so she did. And so he did. And so they died. One sip of water to make a king, one poisoned chalice to take down a queen, a king regent, and all the dreams of divinely blessed sovereignty. Even after Mungin's great sacrifice, Niall did end up taking his father's crown. He ruled for his own handful of years, and his descendants held that seat for more than six centuries beyond that. Those druids who declared Niall's son would hold Ireland forever were not strictly correct, but as we sit here now, I'd wager everyone has met an O'Neill, but few have ever heard whisper of Mungin, the goddess queen witch. Now, I am merely the storyteller. It is not for me to have the last word. That is for Mungin to do. She is the one who told me to tell it straight, and so I did. Well, I stuck to the sources as much as my modern, independent, women's studies-trained mind would allow. It's for Mungin to tell it true. Mungin Speaks. <sighs> yes, I asked you to tell it straight, and so you did. And yes, I asked you to tell it true. And it's also true that this is actually my work to do. You could not have told them about my life before the page, before the scribes got hold of my storyline and twisted the shape of my lifeline. I had my own long life beneath the hills, on that other side of the vale where the Tuatha de Danann still dwell and thrive. I was one of the great goddess Danu's children. I still am. There was a time when we walked the land freely, perfectly at home in our own divine form. But times changed. The old people went and new people came, and we found a way to adapt and make do, to occasionally make our way into this world to help keep the cycles of the seasons, the cycles of the moon, the cycles of birth and death and rebirth. A set of my sisters and I were called to do that magical hag-to-princess-to-queen act I fared worse than most, as you've heard. But generally, it was rather a nice deal, this sovereignty goddess gig. Now, you spoke little about the land herself, about the green of the hills, the blue of the sky, the wet of the rain, the glow of the sun, or the flow of the rivers. You all seem to think that mythology is a great bunch of she said, he said, when truly it is the story of the earth and all creation with just a few characters sprinkled in, because you all seem so drawn to the drama they wreak upon the earth. And, of course, your soul may wander, my Ireland, freely, but your feet do not. There's an absence there that no amount of words can change. But I trust you'll make it to Tara again and begin to tell the true story in time. The stories you had to work with didn't make much of our sacred land either. The scribes did lavish their attention on the ways that I overworked that pitiable scrap of a girl in hopes she'd shed that babe of hers before I could draw breath. I noticed you didn't linger on such details. 
I cannot pretend ignorance nor innocence. I knew everything that went on at Tara. I was the queen in every sense, from the baking of bread to the invitations to the royal table to the lowliest servant in the yard. None of it escaped my notice or attention. And I did despise that my husband would replace me. I did not take the form of a woman and take to living on this side of the veil to become some discarded husk, to be made a redundant old bit of baggage before my time. I stand in power as maiden, as mother, as crone, or as princess, queen, and wise woman, as I hear you tell it. But I play those parts and embody those magics on my own terms and in my own time. No man or earthly power structure is going to tell me who to be or who will be sovereign. You may think me cruel and petty. I wasn't going out of my way to harm that girl. I had an entire country on my mind. And yes, it was a cruel country where people were snatched and sold and, yes, enslaved. I did not do enough to stop that. That may be my one regret. Yes, there was a limit on divine intervention even in those days, but I always had pillow talk. I could have done more as a wife and queen to change my husband's way of keeping and gaining power. With a few millennia of retrospection, I declare I would not find a man by the name of Mugmadon, slaveholder, to be worthy of my beloved land now. Do remember this. The goddess is a force of birth, and she is also a force of death. That woman and her son both serve the will of men. Whether they knew it or not, they were pawns in the game of the short-lived power brokers, the foolish lads grown into even more foolhardy men who thought to remake this land in their own image. And then, sweet storyteller, you left out the part where I commanded my sons to trick Nile by calling him into their quarrel and turning their own knives upon him. Maybe you didn't want to paint me as a would-be murderess, seeing as you brought all these people here to hear some song of a forgotten heroine, some goddess queen witch who deserves to be remembered. <laughs> well, maybe I did order my boys to take Nile down. Maybe they did not because they were too weak. Maybe they had purer hearts than I. Maybe they believed in that oath they'd made to their younger brother. Maybe they believed those bedtime stories I told them, the stories that were actually a true account of how I met your father. Maybe they were raised in a faith so strong they never learned to think for themselves. I, my dears, have been that hag. I have been the transformed maiden who blithely offers a kiss and the friendship of my thighs to the worthy will-be king. I have held the throne and all its power. I have wielded it with wisdom and fairness and in the name of the old ways, in the name of the great mother Danu who cares for this land like she would care for her dearest child. And I, my dears, have always had a name. That mossy-toothed old Bessem who guarded the well? She was no sister of mine. She was sister to no one. That nameless prop they offered you? She has only ever taken breath 
on the page. The lads who ran the ancient O'Neill dynasty's propaganda machine dreamed her up, you see. Those boyos were never by a sacred well with my sons. But they were in the room where it happened. They conducted the backroom deals that took the throne from my worthy eldest son, Brian, and they put Niall in charge. They made up a tale after the fact to justify the way they subverted the will of the goddess. They made up a goddess to justify placing their boy on the throne to suit small-minded, greed-driven human designs. And then they dared do it in my name and invent a story of my demise as a common poisoner. I did drink a poison cup. It took me down just as it took down Crin, my beloved brother. And of course he was of the fairy folk just as I was. I wouldn't have passed the throne on to just anyone while my Brian was off learning the ways of statecraft. Crin and I may have had a disagreement because that brother of mine did rather like his stint on the throne at Tara. The boys of my family did have it a little rough. They didn't have many chances to emerge into this world and try their hand at sovereignty. I can barely blame him. For Critton and me, it was a pact finally sealed. We had watched the men of Tara and the rest of the warring families run rampant over the old beliefs in sovereignty. We'd watched them upend the vital, delicate balance that must be maintained between the gods and nature and the people who rely on the goodwill of those gods and the health of the land. We chose to return to our mother our sisters and our brothers in the realm of the she to restore our sanity and to decide how we'd emerge again to find another worthy ruler on another day. And now most say we gods and goddesses have had our time. We passed the mantle a long time ago. I haven't dreamed of putting on my human guise for centuries. We work in whispers. Now we distrust stories for obvious reasons, but we know that we depend on stories for our very survival. In my day, we didn't have words like patriarchy, capitalism, industrialization, not that I spoke English, but we had men who would wrest control from the vaster unseen hands of nature and the divine. We had women who went along because they trusted men to butter their bread more than they trusted their own sense with the cows. Now hear me, if you've ever met an Irish heroine, you'll know that she always has a mighty way with the cows and can lead the herds or make a miracle with the milk like you've never seen. Remember this, never trust a woman who relies on a man for all her butter. My time is Samhain. That last October night you all seemed to call All Hallows' Eve. I can tell this story out of season, but I ask you to remember when the moon of the autumn again fills the sky. This. Though I hate much of what those monks say of me in their yellowy old book, I rather like the way they tell it at the close. Men on the eve of Samhain precisely Mungin dies. So this is the death of Mungin the Banshee. Hence, Samhain is called by the rabble Mungin's Feast, for she was a witch and had magical power while she was in the flesh. Wherefore, women and the rabble make petitions to her on Samhain. <laughs> 
Oh, the parties we would throw, those wild women and the rest of the rabble. You do know what rabble means, yes? It's the ordinary folk, those who live close to the earth and close to the mother. The rabble are those that the manufactured O'Neill dynasty feared and despised because the women and the common folk knew the truth. They knew that I was sovereignty. They knew that I was goddess made flesh. They knew that I would tend to their needs like a sacred queen devoted to her lands and her people. To celebrate my feast is to celebrate the bonds that exist between the sacred and the everyday, between the gods and the land and the people who depend upon them both. To celebrate my feast is to celebrate the great mother and all those who fight fiercely to protect her. I was a goddess. I was a queen. I still am. I will take their label of witch and make it holy because that is what women and the rabble do when we are misunderstood, accused, and betrayed. I offer my magic, all divine and human as it may be. By my magic, I will ask you to transform the story, my story, your story, poor Karen's story because I cannot believe she wanted to be a henchwoman to those who would tear the world from the hands of its divine caretakers and tilt creation all out of balance. I can only believe that she wanted what we all do, a place to call home where she was safe and seen and trusted and loved. And so mote it Oh, Meg, thank you so much for sitting with me for this story. It's a great story. It's like a Irish soap opera. <laughs> <laughs> Most of them really are. When you give yourself time to just get into all the nooks and crannies. The twists and turns, you just think it's going down one road and then it goes over the hill and around a bend to a new land. And it's, it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. I remember so vividly one of my professors at Boston College, Phil O'Leary, I remember him saying, Irish myth outmoderns the modern and outweirds the weird. <laughs> I love it. No Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to think about that one for a minute. Well, and it underlines my whole idea that I want to offer us here, which is that ancient myths are medicine for our modern maladies. And it just gets proven to me again and again. So in that spirit, I would love to talk a little bit about how this story came to me and why it's important, but I'm sure we'll get there. I'm going to lovingly and gently put you on the spot that you're prepared for this to ask you, you know, what parts of this resonate for you? Because we're on this project to discover, you know, why did these ancient stories matter to us here and now? And I think, you know, Mungan's story is pretty exemplary in that. But is there anything that comes forward for you first? I mean, the biggest theme that, you know, as I'm listening to the story that just kept ringing true is just the, the reference back to nature and the land. Mm -hmm. And I think in our times now, we are getting this 
urgency of we've lived on this land for so long, but we're not living with it. And that is embedded so deeply in Irish culture and all the stories I've heard and, and listened to of the reverence for the land and working with the land and getting the blessings of the seasons. And sure, the humanness rippled in between the love stories and who's taking over. That's all like great attention. And But I feel the real medicine is, is nature and the land. I mean, you said one line, it was so beautiful, tilting the world through the seasons. It's just, for me, I feel like we can always have our different perspectives. And I love that you shared two different perspectives, you know, your perspective, and then you gave Mungin the chance to share from her perspective. Because at the end of the day, it's always just our perspective based on our experience, but the land, mm -hmm. that's another language in and of itself. And I think it's a language that we've lost a little bit that we are craving again. Yeah. I love that you went there with that in small part because you and I are both in the Hudson Valley of New York. You know, we both yes. live on the land of the Lenape people, knowing that we are, you know, our ancestors are of Ireland and other parts of Europe, at least in my case. And, you know, at the same time, we are all at on this quest to develop a relationship with the land beneath our feet. And it's by going to stories that are of our lineage Mm -hmm. and our ancestry, but may not be of the earth itself on which we stand, that we can still make a connection to the here and now. And, you know, I'm hoping that this podcast will take us into meeting some Lenape, Lenape storytellers and other people of Native, Native American tribes and traditions, because ultimately all mythology is getting us to this relationship with what came first before the drama and before the sovereignty meaning statecraft and kingmaking, it was the sense it's the land itself that is sovereign, that what is actually greater than the earth and the waters and the air and the fires. Yes. And I love the point that you made too. Like we're learning this through our heritage, but we are living on native land of these tribes. But I do believe there's universal truth within both. So mm -hmm. how we're getting there is still giving us like reverence for where we're living. And I love that that universal truth comes through no matter how you get there or where you learned it from. There are just these underlining truths that that's when you know it's truth is where no matter how you get there, you get the same answers. So I yeah. thought that was really beautiful. You mentioned another word was, or the men were ruled by strength. And then Mungin, she was the one that was bringing the cycles of the seasons and the moon. And just again, the masculine and the feminine kind of the men bringing in the land, the strength and the wars and sort of the power struggles. And then it's the woman that's always still like, here's the land, here's the earth. She's by the sacred well, whether she was there or not. <laughs> she is in the hills. I mean, this woman's giving birth in the hills and... I was thought it was interesting too, sort of the the masculine and feminine behind that too, that was interwoven throughout the story. Yeah, I love that you you noticed that part too, because that was a real decision for me as a storyteller, as to say, well, you know, how powerful is the goddess? How was she seen in this period in 
in time. There's complexity around the story itself. As old as this story would have been, there wouldn't have been Saxons over in England, but that was when it was written by the monks because, of course, they were speaking to their own political time, just as the O'Neills and their propagandists were speaking to theirs. Like This story has been brought through so many hands and has been twisted and perverted so many times that I hopefully it offers us as modern storytellers license to keep adding and shifting because when I took on some of those voices and offered the will of the goddess and that sort of thing. I would sit back. I'm like, wait, do I believe that? Mm. And do, like, is this me? Like, you know, I have gone through so many phases myself in terms of like really being a goddess worshiping pagan who felt so that was so important. I mean, other times feeling much more of a relationship saying these are stories and traditions and resonances that matter to me. And I'm always in that Celtic knot of in and out but it, I realized that as I was thinking about it, it in many ways really didn't matter. That wasn't the, the real point of the story, but the point was always going to be that tension between human will and those laws of nature, which we're, of course, in that struggle right this instant because, you know, of course, as you're you know, mentioning the feminine, that does not always, you know, in the masculine... The, ma the masculine isn't always just the realm of men. Right now, Correct. it's all of us driving around in our cars and heating our houses and doing all of these things that say, it is my will to live more comfortably upon this earth as a Western person with all these modern amenities. Mm -hmm. That's a deeply masculine choice in so many ways because we know what the cost is. Mm -hmm. opposed to that sense of living in balance. And I am not ready to go live in a mud hut with, you know, <laughs> a single hearth for my household of 23 people. Like, because those are the realities of what certainly Mungin's time would have been, but even just, you know, 200 years ago. So all of this is to say that so much of this had to be a choice of where are our tensions and where are our troubles. How can I ask someone else to say it? Because I don't think anyone needs another polemic against fossil fuels will not be all that more com compelling because that's not my job. We'll leave that to, you know, the actual <laughs> environmental <laughs> activists and brilliant journalists who are better at it than I. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. For sure. I think Another interesting theme that came up too is sort of this shape-shifting and you had it in your book. And I think this idea of that we are these complex creatures, you know, and we're not just one thing for our whole life. And I think we're switching back in this story. It was the goddess, queen, and witch. And in your book, it's the princess, the queen, and the wise woman. And I thought that was really interesting throughout this story too is you know, we're shape-shifting through different times in our lives. And depending on, you know, if you're telling the story or if somebody's witnessing your story. Like, I also love, too, that this woman was saying my life before the page, you know, before we decided to recite it and to judge it or to get inventive with it based on how we live in the world. Because, right, our stories are based on our experiences, what we've seen. And this whole like interesting perspective of, yeah, she's naming that we're all seeing it through our eyes, 
not her eyes. And that we do switch between all these different complexities of personalities and can really never understand the depth of those changes and what motivated them and why you're going through these different phases and what was going on day to day. I mean, yeah, she was taking care of a kingdom. I thought that was really profound. Like I had the weight of Ireland and we're all talking about like, what did you do with this mistress and what happened (laughs) and kind of the macro and the micro. Yeah. And at what point too, was that a little bit of an excuse? Yeah. As I offer that line, it's like, oh, well, Karen herself was part of Ireland. (laughs) Where is that point? Because like I said, this is all based on the original sources. I didn't make up that there was a character named Karen, because certainly in the 2020s, that's an interesting name to have reappear. I thought so, too. That was interesting. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, in a story that's going to talk about slavery, that's going to talk about, you know, this sense of classes and power and how one woman used her privilege in whatever way she saw fit. I'm very busy and important. I have all of Ireland to figure out. I'm not going to worry about that one over there. That was a very difficult part of the story to sit with because, of course, when we really get into mythologies, we are invited to, and in fact, we have to sit with the shadows and the ugliness and the difficulty of our heroines because these are not fairy tales in which, of course, we're always rooting for Cinderella. She was always so downtrodden. And we hope she finds her princess because she is so good. Mm-hmm. That's one of the differences between mythology and fairy tales is that these characters of mythology are so complex, in part because they've been called through so many different versions and everybody's touched it. But also because, as we kind of were saying before, there's a reflection of truth in here. And as you were saying, it is all of these different facets. And of course, if it's Celtic, there's leading with three facets of whatever you want to name them. (laughs) Well, yeah, I think it's, that's the, I love the beauty of the humanness. Like it's not all roses. There are Mm -hmm. some tough things. Like she made some decisions and she owned them. She made mistakes and she claimed not innocence or, I forget the other word you said, like she wasn't naive and she wasn't innocent. She fully knew. And I think that is something a lot of us could do a little more in our searching and kind of accepting our shortcomings and talking more candidly about them. And we're in this social media age where we're just showing everything, all the great moments and all the things we're proud of and we're so perfectly curated Mm -hmm. but we aren't talking about the days in between when you're having the doubts or you made a mistake or you said something you regretted or you weren't your best that day and i i kind of love that honesty because we need more of that we need more of this transparency to then maybe learn from the stories. We can make new mistakes. We can make new problems. <laughs> well, you know, that's one of the reasons I wanted you to sit with me and talk through this story because I always so admire your courage and your candor and also your sense of, you, you don't bleed it all out online, but you talk about where you are in life. And you I know you've hosted many conversations about whiteness in wellness spaces and had different groups really getting into those difficult conversations around white fragility and white supremacy. And you and I have had conversations about nobody, maybe nobody wants to talk about this, but we know that we have to. And Certainly. it, you know, it was innocence and ignorance was the, the that she claimed she did not have hold of. Yes. And 
I feel like you are someone who really holds that space to say, we cannot claim ignorance here. When we've had some level of awakening, we don't go back to sleep. And I feel like so much of your work is that in that kind of keep walking forward of a little bit further into the awakening. Yes, and being uncomfortable and admitting mistakes. And I I guess it's just that it's creating the space to talk about the things we're not proud of, or Mm -hmm. to talk about the things that we don't even know what's right. I think we're always, we always want to have the perfect words. We always want to know everything. We've gotten so intellectualized that we want the data, we want the research. And it's just creating more space to say like, oh, I feel this way, or I've always Mm -hmm. thought this, and now I've heard something new, or I want to learn something new. And, and just like you said, it's not, it's once you hear it, you can't unhear it. Right. I think just having the courage that we can shape shift too. It's like, okay, now we know this and now we can evolve into something else with this information. And I just love, I think it is part of our culture that we're not perfect people. And I think that's been part of the stories and sort of the sense of humor is that we can look at ourselves with a little bit more honesty. And I think the strength, I think there's a strength that we have that we can talk about difficult things and we can create space for that. So that's one of the things that I really love about our heritage and our lineage. And I've also What was interesting that I didn't realize until after I started doing more of sort of the, you know, confronting racism and white fragility is that when you are more rooted in your lineage and your heritage, it gives you more confidence, I would Mm -hmm. say, in exploring those things because you need to be grounded, you need to be rooted. And I think we do have in America here, we have a lot of people that aren't very grounded. They don't know a lot about, you know, sometimes we're three or four generations in now, and a lot of people aren't grounded in where their roots are. So I think that's a really great start to have these difficult conversations. (laughs) And I didn't realize how much it's helped me in doing this work. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, the myth of America was this whole idea of the melting pot, right? And there was supposed Mm -hmm. to be a concept of forgetting. It's in us now when there's the whole brutality around in America, we speak English kind of stuff that comes through, Mm -hmm. right? And so we find how much when we've lost those roots, how painful things are. Cultural appropriation grows from a lack of that groundedness, as you say. And it allows you to then to come to other cultures with reverence and not like a concept of I'm going to raid you for all of your good stuff and take this and apply it to whatever, you know, whether it's a new age concept or whether it's the latest thing that we think is going to sell or whatever, you know, 21st century framework of rootless brokenness that we're here to offer. And that's been so important to me in the stories that I want to share on this podcast, they are either very much taken from the oldest sources that we have. And though when I invite storytellers on, they are bringing stories through their own experience that have truly stood the test of time over centuries, but in the folkloric tradition, because so much of this, of course, is oral, is oral culture that we're bringing through. But the stories have also stood the test of time within a storyteller's own lifetime, that they mm-hmm. have been with the story long enough that 
they are telling it with a sense of authority and not like the boss of everything, but instead that sense of authorship and in the way that as authors, we are in deep relationship with the material. It shifts us as we shift it. We are crafted as we craft. And, you know, wanting to stay away from having somebody come and tell a story of a goddess they found in a book that they thought was kind of cool, which by all means, like that's the way in, like no shade there. Yeah. Always that sense of like, I hope that's the beginning because we want to give ourselves a chance and give these traditions a chance to be in their fullness and not just be part of the modern American potpourri that doesn't have those roots into something older and deeper and coming back to that word truth that you shared before. And I would love to add that it you can tell you embody the story and it's something sensory you know it's beyond just hearing the story from you like when you're telling the story I get tingles at certain times and I feel like that is where you can really hear the authenticity of you know the storytelling is when it is that rooted you get more sensory besides just hearing it and it is, it, it comes through in more than just the words. And I think you can tell you're very grounded in the story and you're very connected to it. And I think that even brings another layer onto it. Well, you know, that's kind of the perfect way probably for us to end. I would love to tell the story of how Mungin found me and why she in so many ways is the goddess mother of this whole venture. So I first discovered her in the book of the Kaliach, the stories of the wise woman healer by an Irish writer, Gerard O'Hulach. And he, this book came out in just after the year 2000 and was recommended by a professor of mine and became one of my guides as I was writing The Sovereignty Knot. He offers cultural commentary in this that reminds us that this was actually a piece of O'Neill dynasty propaganda, that they changed this story in order to fit their devices. And we know because the sovereignty goddess didn't have a name. And that really inspired me and that recognition of the power of names and naming. And there's a whole other conversation we can have around that, but that in the ways it can be very difficult, but we also know it's truly important in the sense of identity. And in the sense of our sovereign selves are so often defined by the names given to us and the names we take for ourselves and how we are remembered. So when I wrote The Sovereignty Knot, there is even a line in it that says something along the lines of, do me a favor, please don't forget her name. Because Mungin is not a beautiful sounding thing. If you read it on the page, it'll look like Mungfind. And it, there's every reason for why the non-Irish speaker would just kind of pass right by that. And the funny thing is, because so often we write, we write things that we need ourselves, I did forget Mungin. Because I, you know, the sovereignty knot came out two years ago. She had sort of receded into the background until the autumn equinox of 2020, when my husband built the equinox fire, and we were, you know, I thought we'd all sit out there together, 
everybody thought it was cold. I mean, I don't, it was it was late September. It wasn't bad, but they all went inside and I was left alone because of course that's exactly what needed to happen. And as the sun was going down, I just entered into creative flow or trance or whatever it is you want to call it in which Mungin came through and she told me what was what in the sense that you have forgotten. And she asked me, invited me, told me it was time to tell the stories of the guides, gods, and ancestors. And it became this co-creative relationship from that point in which I recognized I could ignore her at my peril and open myself up to another several years of quiet desperation in which I'm doing what I should be instead of following that sense of, yes, the universe is conspiring on our behalf and asking us to conspire with it so that we can all make this world more beautiful, bearable, bold, whatever it is. You don't ignore it when a goddess comes to you over the equinox fires. And so it's been a journey with her ever since. I told this story on Samhain. And some people may have heard the, the preview of that already. And just deeply grateful for the sense that she's coming to us across centuries as welcoming in all of the amazing people I get to interview and talk with on this and all the people who might hear it as it ripples forth. And that this is just one more example of why these mythologies, why these characters, these heroines, these heroes, these gods, these goddesses, they still matter because they are helping us craft and shape our present and our future. It's so true. And I, I'm so glad that you hear it and that you share it, you know, because a lot of us may get these whispers and not act on them. But you've been brave enough to share your story and you've been a great inspiration for me to really dig more deeper into these stories. And I've learned so much from your book and from even hearing you know, as an American, sometimes we do get intimidated by the language. And just like you said, the names can be a little bit intimidating, but you just go right in and you start sharing this. And it's it's very inspiring for us. And I think there's no doubt that the gods and goddesses are watching over us. I mean, we both found out we have so many things in common. We we're both originally from Massachusetts. I just happened to get your book in the middle of Woodstock at a similar, a mutual favorite bookstore. So it's just seeing all the magic that's kind of working around us and we're listening. Yeah. And I just hope that everybody else that's listening to this, that they start to listen to and make space for hearing the whispers, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. maybe it's not Monkfin, but maybe it's, you know, somebody else and, yeah. and to, to believe it. I think yeah. we have to start believing it. Yeah. Oh, Absolutely. And that's the whole thing is if we give ourselves just enough of, you were speaking before about living through the intellect and needing, you mm -hmm. know, feeling like we need to think so much. It isn't either or. It's always going to be both and is that when you have the seed of a story and, you know, goddess willing, not work offers people enough seeds that they're saying, oh, maybe that's the whisper I got. Or there's a curiosity that gets inspired to start researching, whether it's a Celtic story or across any tradition. When we start having an ancient vocabulary and an ancient world of 
archetypes and characters that we could say, oh, that's how this universal truth will reach me, or that's how this prompting from the universe will have a face. Because if I just heard, like, the fire told me I needed to do a podcast <laughs> would also be very valid, but it would have given me a lot less to work with. Like, I mean, it was like, thank you very much, ma'am. I'll go do the research and I will prepare that. No problem. I've got five weeks. And I created this story from there. And then over the months created the podcast. But it's that sense of we have what we need in terms of the human creation of the books that have been written and the stories that have been passed on, the relationships that we've built, and then all the inside stuff we've got of our own intuition and those mysterious whispers that seem to come from somewhere beyond. And you were out in nature. I mean, how beautiful by the hearth fire. I mean, it couldn't be more perfect. I think, I think nature is the element too. That's where you, I hear it the most. And it sounds like, you know, that's, that's another common denominator in these stories. Mm, Absolutely. Well, Meg, thank you so much for gathering with me around this virtual hearth fire. I'm so grateful to have been taking these first steps of the journey with you and look forward to journeying on with you. I'd love to honor the work that you do in the soul cabin and just ask you to say a couple words about the magic that you weave and the community that you create and how people can find you. Yes. First, just thank you so much for having me on. It's been such a pleasure hearing these stories and learning and sharing with you. So thank you for having me. And yes, I have a online community called the Soul Cabin. And this is a sacred online space where I help women rekindle or maintain a connection to their own inner wisdom. And it's just a really great space where we talk less about the intellect and more about the soul. So um, if that's interesting to you, you can follow me on at the soul cabin on Instagram or the soul cabin.com. I highly recommend Meg's work to everyone. She's the real deal. Thank you so much for being with us deeply grateful. Thank you. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for tuning in to the Not Work Podcast. Please subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform and do share this episode with other lovers of myth and story. By the way, everyone is a lover of myth and story, even if they've forgotten. You can find out more about my writing, my book, and how to work with me as a writing coach and story healer, as well as my online writing community and courses at marisagowdy.com. Follow the show on Instagram at NotWorkPodcast and join our listeners group over on Facebook. Music on the show is provided by the wonderful Beth Sweeney and Billy Hardy, a Celtic fiddle and multi-instrumental duo based on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Our intro music draws together a number of tunes dating back to the 18th century and is entitled The Cape Breton Salute. Find more about their music and shows at BillyandBeth.com. Gratefully, I live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Muncie Lenape tribe, whose name means original people. Remember, ancient stories are medicine for our modern maladies, and your stories can help heal the past, anchor us into the present, and create a more beautiful, sustainable future.